Hi, you're listening to Sergeant Dorsey Speaks podcast produced by the Get Global Network. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Hi, and welcome to Sergeant Dorsey Speaks. Thank you for subscribing to my podcast and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, SGT, the abbreviation for Sergeant, SGT Cheryl Dorsey on Instagram and Twitter, as well as subscribe to my YouTube channel, SGT Dorsey Speaks, much like my podcast. I'm a retired 20-year veteran sergeant in the Los Angeles Police Department, and I'll be providing you with an insider's perspective on police policy, police culture, and police training. I'll pull the covers back, expose that thin blue line and decipher police cold talk when we hear it. I'll also be discussing incidents that are making national headlines and how you might get involved and engaged in your particular communities. Also, I'll be offering solutions on how best to survive police encounters because at the end of the day, the goal is for everyone to go home safe. For more about me and my career, visit my website, www.sgtsherldorsey.com for information about my advocacy work, as well as my 20-year career, which is chronicled in my autobiography, Black and Blue, The Creation of a Social Advocate. I talk about in great detail my 20-year career on the LAPD, where I worked in patrol my entire career under the command of police chiefs, Daryl Francis Gates, Willie Williams and Bernard Parks. I talk about real life encounters and adventures, if you will, during my 20 year career. I name names um, in some instances and in others, I use pseudonyms and aliases that I like to give folks. You'll be able to tell exactly who it is that I'm talking about based on the circumstances when I use an alias. And for those of you who'd like a sneak peek on my website, www.sgtsherldorsey.com, you can read the first chapter of volume two, Black and Blue, The Creation of a Social Advocate, as well as my next to be released book, volume three in the Black and Blue series, Black and Blue, Creation of a Whistleblower. Let's get to it. I often have people contact me and ask me, you know, where are the good cops? And I wish there were more officers like you who are speaking truth to power. And I often respond and say there are several that I'm associated with personally who speak the way that I do, who look like I do, whose experiences are very similar to mine. And so I want to introduce you to one such person. Uh, his name is Dr. DeLacy Davis, and he is a member of the National Coalition of Law Enforcement Officers for Justice, Reform, and Accountability, as am I. Dr. DeLacy Davis and I came to know each other about four or five years ago when we were introduced by the co-founder of NCLELJ, Reddit Hudson, and Noel Leader, a former St. Louis Police Department officer and retired NYPD sergeant. And we got together and our group traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with um, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee to speak about issues that are concerning to us and purportedly the Judiciary Committee at that time. We were um, blessed enough to have her introduce us on the floor of the Judiciary Committee during uh, their hearing while we were in town. We're hopeful 
that we would be invited back to speak before Congress about the type of reform, justice, and more importantly, accountability that we see as being meaningful and necessary in this current space that we're in. And so while we you know, didn't get a chance to go back and meet with Congress, we've each been doing our own work in our own corners of the world. I am lucky enough to have a national platform and been afforded an opportunity to appear on national and international networks with regards to what we see occurring on a national level around the country and what I think should be done, what I think the community should be doing. And so I thought I'd use my platforms to introduce uh, these other folks to you. And so this is the first series in that segment. And so please, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, my brother in the struggle, my brother in blue, Dr. DeLacy Davis. He's a retired New Jersey police sergeant who served for 20 years in the East Orange Police Department and commanded the Community Services Unit. Dr. Davis has served as the Northeast Region President of the National Black Police Association from 1996 to 2000. He also served as the organization's International Council Representative servicing Bermuda, Canada, Jamaica, and England. Dr. Davis is the East Coast Representative for the National Coalition of Law Enforcement Officers for Justice Reform and Accountability, NCLEOJ. His global advocacy work includes a mission to Rome, Italy with the Under Our Wings delegation to meet with Pope John Paul II along with parents of juveniles in America who had been executed or sentenced to life without parole in the United States. Dr. Davis has traveled to Ghana, West Africa as a guest of President John A. Kufour. He traveled to the Republic of South Africa as the NBPA law enforcement delegate to establish community policing. He's also traveled to Havana, Cuba on a humanitarian mission with Pastors for Peace. Most recently, Dr. Davis completed his doctoral degree examining the factors relating to police officers shooting unarmed black males. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Drew University in New Jersey, a Master of Administrative Science degree from Farley, delete that, from Fairley Dickinson University in New Jersey, a Master of Public Administration MPA and Executive Leadership Certificate from Rutgers University, New Jersey, and a Doctor of Education degree from St. John Fisher College in New York. I am really excited to introduce you to a, a colleague, a comrade. I have folks asking me all the time, what's up, where are the good cops? How come they don't tell? Do they exist? Are you the only one? And so I've been telling you guys for the longest that I'm not, and I am excited to start this off with what I believe to be uh, my powerhouse. I, I, I wanted to come in strong, hard, and heavy on my first time with you. And so let me tell you, I've already shared in my comments who my guest is. He is Dr. DeLacy Davis. He's a retired New Jersey police sergeant who served for 20 years on the East Orange Police Department. If you have seen the tease for this, you've already read in the description all of who he is. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with that. I will let him share a little bit about who he is, and then we're going to get right to it. And so having said all of that, let me please welcome and introduce my good, good buddy, my brother in the struggle, my brother in blue. Dr. DeLacy Davis, what's up? 
Hey, you. How are you? Happy to see I am you. good. I know the weather's great on the West Coast because we're catching hell on the East Coast. And, yeah, and we got uh, mid-90s all week. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So listen, I, you know, you know, we, we've been doing what we've been doing from different corners of the world. And we have, um, you know, we're just by happenstance brought together some years ago and we formed um, joined rather the formation of the National Coalition of Law Enforcement Officers for Justice Reform and Accountability um, on at the behest of our brother in the struggle, Reddit Hudson, who's going to be with me on next week. But I just thought it was important because we all have different opportunities and we have different platforms. And I wanted to, on my little corner of the world, bring some of you guys over and introduce you to my family and have them know, number one, I'm not alone. And number two, what it is that and how we together uh, to further expand on that. So having said that, uh, Dr. D, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, and then we're going to get into what you've been doing, the problems that you see, that I see, that I talk about. I want them to hear another version, but I really want us to focus on how do we fix this, because we already know what the problem is, and I want folks to hear how do we fix it. I'm all about resolution. So, sir, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. So, of course, I'm retired police sergeant, East Orange, 20 years on the police force, five years as a school principal in the city of Newark, New Jersey, of a, of a charter school, and for the last seven years, executive director for the Family Support Organization of Union County in Plainfield, New Jersey, where we provide support, education, and advocacy to parents and caregivers of children with special needs, those who have substance use challenges, and those with juvenile justice system involved. Um, I'm also the executive director for New Jersey Alliance of Family Support Organizations, where we're responsible responsible for providing technical assistance and training and certification to all 15 of the organizations in the state of New Jersey. So I do a lot of that. And as you know, I just successfully defended my dissertation, police use of force, examining the factors relating to police officers shooting unarmed black males, where I use a firearm simulator, a North Jersey police department, 30 police officers, four firearm scenarios and shoot, don't shoot. And I was measuring the officer's error rate and reaction time. And we were looking to see if the officer's race, age, years of service, or place of residence had an impact on their decision to shoot or not shoot. Now, my null scenario was a black male who was unarmed advancing at the police officer. And the expectation was that the majority of them would shoot at him. Um, in my study, they did not. And while my study was not generalizable beyond the department that I was studying, um, we could attribute some of the findings to the fact that there was a police director there working very hard on improving community police relationships. Um, I had a larger population of officers of color than white officers, and all of that could have contributed to the findings. So I make some recommendations for future studies where I think that we should look at police officers and their behavior in scenarios, but also compare their behavior in the scenario to the body-worn camera to see if the behavior is the same, where we can pull up the same scenario. So you did this in the shoot-don't-shoot shoot scenario, but you did this when you thought nobody else was looking. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, I founded Black Cops Against Police Brutality in 1991 while on the police force, which was unpopular back then. This was um, just before Rodney King. And people wanted to know what in the hell was wrong with me. Why would I start a, a organization called Black Cops Against Police Brutality? I'd only been on the job five years, but I'd seen things in law enforcement that didn't make sense to me. Like I couldn't understand. And I was just asking, I thought logical questions. I was a young cat. Um, about 27, 28 years old. And I wanted to know 
Why are we locking residents up for drunk driving and the white sergeant who comes to work drunk every day before the tour, we never lock him up? And why is it that white suspects come in uncuffed and black ones come in dragged in and beat up? So when I would see a drunk driver that was white brought in uncuffed, the next day I would take a picture of it first and take a note. And the next day I'd bring in a drunk driver uncuffed and the desk sergeant or lieutenant who was usually Caucasian would say, why isn't that suspect cuffed? Because the white woman y'all brought in yesterday wasn't cuffed. So I thought it was a new policy. I was just following what I observed. And so, of course, that made me a smart aleck, a wise guy. But I really pushed the limits in law enforcement at a time when it wasn't popular. So that's kind of who I've been. I continue to be. Let me ask you something, because for me, when I joined the LAPD, now I understood I was a black woman when I joined. I, I never had to be reminded, although they do like to do that to you. When you joined, did they ever, were there ever instances where you felt like they were trying to remind you? What, were, what was it like? What did you have to endure, if anything, in those early years? So I, I think for me, um, early on, it was a lot of things that I got to see. So I joined the Black Police Organization as soon as I came on the force. So Sergeant Irv Childress was the president of the Kinsmen which was a part of the National Black Police Association. So I knew advocacy early. I also didn't like law enforcement very much. I joined the police force to become a musician. I mean, I mean to finance my music career. I was already a musician. I wanted to finance my music career. So I felt that would be a stable career. So when I got there, in fact, I got to meet Naughty by Nature and we became friends, Vinny Tretch and KG. Um, got to, actually, I became the um, instructor at the academy for Queen Latifah's brother, Lance, before he passed. And as a result of that, we had a relationship. So I utilized and leveraged my music connections to also become a better police officer. I was an outside the box thinker. But I can tell you that um, the reminder for me was black officers talking to me privately and saying, listen, we're OK that you want to do this community thing and you want to do this music thing. But we like knocking coconuts in the head. And that was a reference to the Caribbean community. We had a large Caribbean population in East Orange, and it's one of the blackest cities in the state. And I said to the guy, well, you also need to know that I like testifying against cops that knock coconuts in the head. So if you crack one in front of me, whatever that means, I promise you I will testify. And during my career, I testified against two black officers. Um, didn't feel good. The hardest decision to ever make. But it was the correct position to take. And what I reminded black people and black cops of often was that the life you save may be your own because I live in a black community. I came from black community. I was raised by this black community. And therefore, at the very minimum, my oath was also about protecting the very black community that gave birth to me. And so if I die in this community, because it was my time to die, but I'll be damned if I'm gonna watch you kill my community. And I at least, I do not at least stand up to defend them with all that I have. As I've often said, I would rather die a man than live a slave any day. And so as a result of those two instances where you had to testify, where you did testify, what was there any backlash? Absolutely. Um, cost what me much of like? my career. What did it, it look like? It cost much of my career. So no one would back me up. Um, when I went on calls in the city, my nearest backup should have been three or four blocks away. But whenever I call for backup, they were busy. And these were black and white officers doing it to me. So my nearest backup came 20 blocks away. Even when they weren't supposed to come out of zone, these were the few brothers that stood with me. They would defy the policy and come out of zone to make sure I had a backup. Sometimes it was the community that backed me up. 
I remember um, trying to make an arrest on drugs in a high crime area where I, where I was walking the beat at one point, uh, and I couldn't get, get in on the radio, whether they were keying the radio, not letting me get in for backup. But um, I'll never forget one of the big, the well-known drug dealers was standing there as they were attempting to jump me. And he said, uh-uh, you're not going to jump this officer. He's fair with the community. Now, y'all want to fight him one-on-one? I will stand here and y'all can fight him until he drops or y'all drop. So y'all just line up, but no one's jumping him because he's not allowed any bad cops to put drugs on us or to beat us down. And that was my career. And so I spent the bulk of my career, 17 of my 20 years, fighting my own department. And my department is the blackest department in the state of New Jersey. It was like 97%, 98% black and brown people on the force. Um, white supervision, but black leadership in terms of um, the chief, the mayor, and, and black officers on the force. And so I just was determined for whatever reason, and, and you know, and I can't say it was my plan. It was just God planting a seed in me that said, you must speak up. My first lecture in 1991 was at Rikers Island in New York. And I went and spoke to two or 300 lifers because I felt that I had lacked the courage to call out behavior that I knew was questionable at best. And I let that be my launch pad. And from then on, I was sailing and I've continued to speak out. And it's been a dangerous experience. Um, I remember going to a black police officers meeting one Saturday and a black sergeant who at the time was the mayor's bodyguard came up behind me, caught me from behind and choked me off the ground. Now I'm five at that time, five, eight, five, nine, He's six one, six two, and a big dude and is choking me. I'm literally trying to get my gun to shoot him off me. They're holding my arm to keep me from getting to the gun, and somebody else got the other arm of him trying to get him off my neck. I wound up filing a criminal complaint, and that went through the courts. So I had some struggles with black officers. You know, I, I used to say, I don't mind fighting a racist white officer, but I had so many Negro black officers in line in front of them that I had to fight them to get to them. And that's how it looked for me in my agency and outside of it. And does and that, that still, still go on, on currently? Yes, it does go on. So it hasn't gotten better. It, so I would say that it hasn't gotten better. I, I think that law enforcement has gotten worse. I think that um, there are some black officers that have come forward. As I said to you off camera, I think that black and brown women and other people of goodwill in law enforcement have come forward and decided that enough is last 20 years, it would not be like leading the struggle against police violence and police abuse. It would be black women and definitely inside of law enforcement. Um, just in terms of my own research, one of the theories that I use was standpoint theory by um, George William Hegel of 1807. And he was looking at the experience between the slave and the slave master and how knowledge is acquired knowledge and power are acquired and utilized. And what he says is not only is it the oppressor and the oppressed, but the perspective of the oppressed is much more unbiased and objective than that of the oppressor. And so I think that that not knowing that theory then, but that has led me to believe and understand that black women would lead this charge in law enforcement. Look at yourself. You know, we're proud of you. I mean, you've accomplished quite a bit, but um, in times when you could be silent, you continue to be vocal. That's important. And so, you know, I, in addition to shedding a light on what's wrong with our profession, I also want to be a recruitment tool, right? And I have people who ask me, um, why would why would anybody want to do that job or say, I certainly would never want to do that? What would you say to someone who's, because I, I'm a firm believer that change is going to come from the inside and 
let me know if you feel that way as well. What do you say to those folks who wonder, why would I work so hard when I don't have the support? I would say that um, if that were not the case, we wouldn't be here. See, Jesus was one of the baddest revolutionaries I ever studied, and he was one man. Moses was one man. Mahatma Gandhi, one man. Mother Teresa, one woman. Um, um, my grandmother was the strongest black man I've ever known. My grandmother would fight you to the death and dare you to get up on her. So I've always known black women to go up against overwhelming odds. And there are those who've gone before us who have paved the way that we have an obligation morally, spiritually, and culturally to at the very minimum do what they did. They were faced with overwhelming odds. It was against the law to read, write, and pretend that you knew any damn thing, let alone know anything. And now here we are with education being free, however bad it may be, and we have the audacity and the unmitigated gall to pretend to be stupid. We're not a stupid people. So the reason that we would go up against overwhelming odds, because people who had less than us did more than us when they were here. So why would we not at least every generation has an obligation to at least meet the standard of the previous the previous generation and make a way for the next one to come? I've got children and my children's children that I want to make the world better for, as do you. And therefore, even against overwhelming odds, if I wasn't standing up, I wouldn't know you. And if you weren't standing up, I wouldn't want to know you. That's the reality, right? You've got other folks that you've lined up. Carrie O'Horn out of Buffalo. Rochelle Bilal, the police director down in um, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. She's the first woman elected sheriff in 186 years. Why would she go up against the two-time black incumbent in a very black city when she doesn't have the money? He had a million dollars. She had less than $100,000. Why would she go up against him? Because she won by 20,000 votes. Because she believed, and she believed because the people that went before her believed. We have to remember that when we had nothing, we were always faithful. We were always a people that believed in our people. We believed in each other. And even when we had some doubt, we would hold each other up at the worst of times. My grandmother was born 1901, died 1982, youngest of 10 children. All her aunts and uncles were slaves. And grandma tells me that story. That was my mother's mother. Okay, I am the fifth generation of my family, Professor Gable Day from Loudoun County, Virginia, 1818 to 1895. How dare I be anything less than what he was five generations ago? That's why I got you here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I got my pom-poms over here. Y'all can't see because the screen is shared, but <laughs> but I knew that you would um, not hold back. And, and I know that you are passionate much like I am. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, all that's wrong, and I want to talk eventually about how do we fix this, but you kind of alluded to it already. What 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 is it about what we see, what, what we know, what we've experienced personally, what we see others going through, what we see our communities going through, and very little in the way of change. What keeps you up at night? Um, waking up a Negro, that's one of the things that keeps me up. <laughs> I often have said, if I ever wake up and I act like the Negroes that I'm fighting against, I want y'all to put me to sleep. I'm with Dr. Koborki, and I believe in euthanasia. Some Negroes, we just got to euthanize, right? Because they're just useless, right? I, what keeps me up at night is waking up one day and realizing that I'm the old person that I talked about when I was a young person. There's a difference between old people and elders. Old people are damaged, just old and in the way. 
elders, as they get older, they get wiser, and we make way for young people to take the stage. That keeps me up at night. The fact that we claim to be for young people and we empower none of them, that we don't give young people the opportunity to make choices, to make decisions, and to be the powerful young creatives that they really are and truly are when they're unmolested culturally by this society, Western society, and some of us. In fact, some of us hate young people and we act like it. And so that keeps me up at night. Finally, what keeps me up at night is black people not getting to where I know we rightfully belong on the stage. We cannot give birth to the world and be last in everything. In fact, the only way you could be last in everything is if everybody is working against your own best interest up to and including you, which is us. And so, you know, we found each other because we are all seeking this thing, right? Reform, justice, and accountability across yeah. these 18,000 police departments. And so what does that look like for you? And you can just go through each one, reform, justice, and accountability. What does that look like for you? I'm going, I'm going to go through it and I'm going to hit them this way, right? At the federal level, we're talking about trauma-informed policing. We're talking about pattern practice investigations that were stopped under sessions that need to be reinstituted because police don't do anything unless they're compelled to do it. Frederick Douglass says power concedes nothing without the man, never has and never will. Know just what any people will quietly submit to and you know the exact measure of the wrong and injustice will be imposed upon them and they'll be continued until they resist it with words or with blows or with both. So we need to have investigations because police departments aren't gonna do the right thing because they're the right people. They were born out of slavery and enforcing slave patrols to force people to stay enslaved. So why in the hell would a system that's designed to do what it does and continues to do it well into perpetuity, why would it change itself? There's no such animal. And in the North, while they were being formed by Robert Peel in 1829, based on the, the Metropolitan Police in England, they were union busting. They were doing all those nefarious things because Robert Peel had cut his chops by oppressing the Irish in, the, in England. And so therefore, we're talking about two systems of policing that were based on oppression. So, you, you know, um, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing says in the ISIS papers, the keys to the colors, there's nine people area activities that are dominated by white supremacy. And we have to either get inside of those institutions, tear them down, reform them or rebuild them. But we need to make them just for everyone. Right. And so she talks about education, economics, um, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex and war. Pick any one of them and reform them. But they all lead back to the same thing because the police department is an arm of government. And so police department is enforcing, they're protecting property and enforcing the system so that they don't upset the status quo. And so we happen to be on the bottom. So we need pattern and practice investigations. We need to address qualified immunity. When police officers begin to lose their homes, their cars, their wives, their children, and their other girlfriends, right, or boyfriends, <laughs> then they'll stop behaving the way they do because they won't have that, that slush fund to play with. We need whistleblower protections for police police officers who come forward. Well, we understand that if you come through on the CEPA complaint, um, Conscientious Employee, Employee Act, um, Protection Act of 1983, which is a federal statute, we recognize the police officers don't get that. If Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was with the mafia, killed 19 people and we could forgive all 19 in exchange for him giving up John Gotti, then tell me why a cop that hasn't done anything criminal but wants to come forward does not get the same level of protection when they want to give up brutal cops and cops that are putting their knees on people's necks. Okay, we have to address the police bill of rights. We not only need to ban chokehold, we need to ban any kind of um, 
torture that puts you in a compromising position because the social reality is, and this is what um the, the attorney at war, Alton Maddox used to say, that black people are always knocking at the wrong door, asking the wrong question. Why are we pushing to have a ban on chokeholds when what killed, what, Sh what Sh Derek Chauvin did to um, George Floyd was not a chokehold. It was a knee to the neck. And so it's a compression. So we're fighting for the wrong thing. We need to ban anything that's going to put people in a compromise that's torturous in terms of their treatment. And that's what that was. I believe in divest and reallocation of police budget funds so that we're not simply getting rid of the police. Because in my neighborhood, I got some cousins, Pookie and Peaches and Ray Ray and them, who hope you get rid of the police <laughs> and fund because they're going to vamp on the community. And then we have to talk about elected officials. We need to make it taboo for elected officials to take money from police unions anywhere in this country if you're committed to our community that needs to be taboo and therefore and this is all just at the federal level and that's where we get accountability should i could lord did i lose her listen did you I lose you, you bring us you bring us so much heat dude you didn't froze the damn uh <laughs> <laughs> you you, yeah, either that or so, or the gremlins are trying to keep you from saying what you say. And listen, family, we've been talking like this together for over a year, for sure, for sure. And I just want you to know, uh, he has not bugged my house. <laughs> I did not give him any notes. We just, we feel the same. We think the same. We, we experience the same East coast, West coast. There is no difference. And so, um, it's amazing, but not to me because I know you, D. And so I, I know, you know, how you, how you think. Um, I know why you think. But I thought it was important for other people to see that, number one, I'm not alone. That's right. And number two, that while we talk about the same thing, sadly, we're talking about the same. We're talking about different states, but we're talking about the same thing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no difference. And so. Let me let me ask you about some of the things that are being put forth in terms of air quote reform, right? Because I think many of these police chiefs are being disingenuous when they talk about the things that they want to do with regards to changing uh, the mindset, the culture. And, you know, that's a whole nother thing. You can talk to that in a minute. How do you really change the mindset? But I, I hear them talking about everything except for accountability. Right. Yeah. And and you alluded to some of that, you know, uh, take away some of the toys that these officers are able to get by having them have to pay a portion of whatever this six point four, one point two million settlement is going to be instead of it being taxpayer money. So how do, how do we how do we get there? And, and, and what do you think about what's being purported as reform on a national level? I know they're in, I think Cory Booker, and isn't he your senator in New Jersey talking about a national registry? I'm like, dude, miss me with that. They already got a list. So, they so, know who so, these people are. Yeah. So don't you know which of your family members shouldn't come to the family cookout and the family <laughs> reunion? Okay. They know who the bad cops are. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. One, you have to demilitarize the police. Let's start with that. The 1033 program that allows you to have surplus military equipment. There's no need to have a tank with civilians. None. You don't need a tank. You don't need to come dressed in all black. You don't need a helmet that's all blacked out. You don't need flashbangs. You don't need all of that stuff on the streets with civilians. That's number one. Number two, police departments are not committed 
to um, reform. They're committed to doing whatever they need to do to get the pressure up off of them, which is why I'm so proud that the young people are still on the streets, right? Make all the noise, raise all the hell you can raise, because that's the only time we ever see change occur in this community. The last time we saw seismic change, we saw some change after Rodney King of 92. And prior to that, you didn't see any change until the 68, 67, 68 rebellions. And in 1970, you saw your black your first black police executives in 1970. You also saw your first black mayors of major cities, including Newark, New Jersey, when we had a Newark, um, the, the black and poor Puerto Rican coalition um, led by Amiri Baraka and some others who came together to get a black mayor, which led to black police executives um, like Charlie Knox, um, like Hubert Williams, who's running the Police Foundation and those kinds of directors. You also saw Gary, Indiana with black leadership. You And, and so, and, and Kurt Smoke down in Baltimore. So what happens is that they're just trying to get the pressure off by doing something. That means nothing, right? We don't need a registry. I don't need, all you need to do is, I just alluded to that when I said whistleblower protection. If you tell me tomorrow that you're gonna give me the same thing you gave Sammy the Bull, we'll tell them all. Right. I mean, because cops don't want to snitch. Right. They got no snitching and get there to be mad at the kids on the street for not snitching. Right. There's all sorts of things. Now, let me go to the state police. One, you need a special prosecutor to investigate police use of force and police homicides. And that should be all that they do. That's, again, another level of accountability. Why? Because when there's a special prosecutor, they don't need the police to make cases and to make their career. All they're doing is investigating police. So that changes the game significantly. We have to change the standards as California is attempting to do, but just not well. And that is from the use of deadly force from a reasonable standard to necessary, right? In the police academy, I was told that the last thing you want to do is employ deadly force. In our communities against us, the first thing they do is pull a gun out in the first 2.5 seconds to mere rice. They jumped out the car in two seconds or less, opened fire on a 12-year-old kid. Why? 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 Can't explain any of that. We need licensing. New Jersey is now looking at licensing police officers so that if you lose your license, you don't get to go to another department and get a job. That's something that's a legitimate reform that they can put in place. Then we have to look at the police academies and who's being dismissed. Because I surmise, and I used to teach in one of the academies, that we need to look at the police academy dismissals by race, ethnicity, and gender. Because we see black men and women, and usually the women, being washed out of police academies for firearms and physical fitness. Mm -hmm. That's important. That becomes critical. And then finally, at the local level, we need civilian oversight, right? In some form or fashion, it took us only almost 20 years to get civilian review board in um, New Haven, Connecticut. Malik Jones' mother, Malik Jones was killed by the police in East Haven on a motor vehicle stop in New Haven. Even the black cops then didn't have the courage or the testicular fortitude to stand up and call out the cop. To we want to wait till the end of the investigation. Aren't you an investigator? Why in the hell did you need to wait till the end of the investigation other than to buy time like the same people are giving us these these fake reforms. We need to redirect funds to social services, mental health, homelessness, rehab for addiction, as well as domestic violence. We need mental health first aid. Those are people that are trained to be first responders that can come when you see a person having a mental health crisis and we can be there to help them until the professionals come, not the police. We need to we need to divest the police in terms of what we ask them to respond to. I don't think we should have school resource officers because you need to have the right kind of school resource officer, right? Because if you don't like children, why are you working in a school? And all you're doing is now moving our children that much closer to a criminal history. And we know disproportionately that black and brown kids, while they may be committing crime at the same rate as white kids, they're being thrust into the system much more quicker. They're not getting curbside adjustment. They're not getting released out of custody. And therefore, what we find is our children now have criminal records and they can't get jobs. Because what happens is when other people go to jail, 
due time and get out, they get a hookup. And I'm not talking about black and brown people. When we go to jail and do time and we come out, we are we got a scarlet letter on us for life. Can never get a job that's making minimum wage, let alone above minimum wage. And so all of that. Then we need evidence-based strategies to address some of the issues and concerns that police are responding to. We need to reduce the reliance on police. I told you about the school resource officers. And then we need to deal with the stressors like racism, right? Racism is a stressor in and around our community. Black officers want to go along to get along. Right. We want to be accepted. So some of us are worse than the most racist of white officers. And what I've said that got me put out of the police union for a while is that the organizational culture of law enforcement is white male dominated, racist, sexist, homophobic. And then you might find a good cop. Wow. Wow. So. Having said all that, <laughs> because I know that this is going to be, you know, I, I don't expect to see it in my lifetime. I don't know about you. But, but how can we engage and involve the community? Because I think that they have a role to play. We can tell them, you know, you preaching over there on the East Coast, I'm preaching over here on the West Coast. And then folks say, well, you know, voting don't matter and they not listening and why am I gonna tell blah, blah, blah. What role does the community play and how do we engage them? Let me give you one quick example. When I was in my early 20s, I was speaking for the Urban League and young people in the Urban League and NAACP youth components. One of the young men from the Urban League wanted me to come in as a guest speaker. The Negro that was in charge said he's too radical, too extreme, and we won't let him come. So they said his fee is too high. So I said, I'll come for free. Then they told him, well, no, we just don't want him. He's radical. And they didn't let me come. Well, that young man became an aide to a senator that wound up going to Washington, D.C. He remembered me and he called me up and said, Brother DeLacy, you've been doing this work and black people coming here and begging for jobs. I want to show you how to get money and showed me how to write for an earmark. And we were able to get approved for an earmark for $1.5 million. By the time it got cut up, went through the Congress and all that and came back to New Jersey, it was $850,000 by both congressional and senatorial delegations approved it. And then what I did was I took the 20 young people from the community who I've been doing work with in the community said, how do you want to divide your money? What do you want to spend it on? What do young people want? We took young people to Ghana, West Africa, all expenses paid, 26 of them hosted by the president of the country. We took 36 young people to South Korea, to the World Peace Games, playing basketball, men and women, young and old, all expenses paid, got passports, the whole bit to see the world. And we did all in between. And the point I'm making is the community fails to understand how much power they actually have. That's just the story of one young man at 16 who winds up going to D.C., understanding how the system works and getting the money back home to the community and me understanding that I should take care of the community and not myself. That's number one. One of the most powerful institutions in our community is the black church. All day, every day, no matter how we slice it. I'm a Muslim man, but I came up out of the church. And the reality is that the churches are not responding to the needs of the masses of the people. I tell pastors all the time, if you're not out on the street, I don't give a damn about what you claim, period. Because we need you to do it for the least of the people. The scripture says that Jesus said, if you haven't done it for the least of my people, you have not done it for me. I need to know, are you going to go? Lord, they won't let me work. I need to know, are you going to go out into the street with the masses of the people where we need you? And so our people need to know, just like Rochelle Bilal, she didn't have money. She didn't have a network. She, the machine went against her. Even black women organizations that she supported told her they didn't think she could win and therefore they would not support her. And now that she has won, now they're scratching at the door. 
And she's still being gracious because she's advancing women up through the ranks where they never had opportunity before. So we have so much power. If you don't like the police in your community, don't worry about controlling the police. Control the people who control the police, like the elected officials, like the city budget. So run for office. Stop whining and complaining. Get out on the ground and do some work. Every one of us represents 10 votes. So you get 10 of your friends together. That's 100 votes. Start out if you want to start small. Become the... um. The I can't think of it now, but it's the, the civic leader, right? And then you get on the committee, the local committee. They usually win by 10, 15, 20, 30 votes. And you start working your way up and building your force of young people, if you will, to take over some of these institutions. They're ready for the taking. We just don't know it. We got to be fully involved. Keep pressure on them all the time, every time. Don't allow them to be comfortable. I tell my community just about black cops. I live in the hood. They sell drugs on every corner except the four where I own a home and the other four where my parents have a home. And I say to them, brothers, y'all can't sell here. You don't live here. You can't sell here. I'm just asking you, give me these four. I walk three miles every day. I wave at them. They wave at me. They saw me one day walking to the local hospital because I was doing a lecture for the board of directors. They said, where are you going, sir? I said, I'm going to do a lecture to talk about George Floyd and racism and race in the institution. They're like, if you need us, you call us because we down. Right. I have a relationship in the community. Now, they're not going to sell in front of me, and I'm not going to watch them sell, but I'm also not going to watch cops beat them and put stuff on them. The community has got to engage the system. Now, if you just don't like the system, the community, then leave. But if you're going to be here, be actively involved in this community. Decide that you're going to run some. If you can't run, run somebody. If you can't vote, then make sure you help other people vote. If you can't vote, you can put flyers on the street. You can take people to the polls. You can run candidates out. Identify the weak candidate and target them to take them out of office because they're not addressing your needs. We need to make sure that we understand we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. We have permanent interests. So we need to vote our interests and we need to put people in play who represent our interests. So let me ask you, I know you're in Newark, but you're just right over the bridge from New York and some of the shenanigans that are going on over there in terms of um, the commissioner, Dermot McShay or Shea, whatever his name is, talked about, um, you know, their version, I guess, of kind of defunding and reallocating, getting rid of their, um, what is it, the emergency response team or the jump out boys, whoever they are, you know, that group I'm talking about, 600 officers that right. somehow moving them into uniform is going to magically make things all better. Yeah, I, I think that what we're seeing, and that's why you see the surge in homicides and shootings across the country in urban communities, including mine here in Newark, all of a sudden. I think that we call that in the police world, because I was a union rep, we call it upward discipline. So when the community marches against the police department, the police get angry, their feelings get hurt. And what they say is, we're just not going to police at all. And so we'll let you have at it and we unleash the Krakens. And that's what I think he's doing by shifting um, the units so that they can unleash the Krakens. And so what I question and challenge all the time is their commitment to the community. That's why I believe the police should have to live in the community because then you won't be unleashing Krakens because your children are in the same damn community and so are your loved ones. And so you now have a vested interest. You know, um, Dr. Adelaide Sanford, who's an elder in her 80s, used to say to me when I was preparing to run the school, she says, whenever self as an interest competes with any other interest, self always wins. And so law enforcement, when you're not invested in the community, then the only thing you're invested in is in yourself. And so you're going to protect your self-interest. And we need to make it worthwhile for you to understand that if you're not invested in this community, then you can't draw a $100,000, $200,000 salary 
out of this community and take it somewhere off into a suburb. Right, right. So listen, um, lots of, of talk about um, no knock warrants. I know someone had mentioned something earlier and I think they want to, to hear a little bit about what you think about no knock warrants and we're waiting mightily to see if some of these um, prosecutors in the case of Breonna Taylor and, and others, um, I'm, I'm near and dear to my heart, a young man in Connecticut, Mubarak Sullivan. I don't know if you know his story, but um, waiting for the uh, Attorney General Michael Gaylor in Connecticut to make a decision about whether or not the officers are going to be prosecuted over there. So when you have situations like the no-knock, and we 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 know that there's no reason for no-knock. It, it doesn't make any sense. It didn't then. It doesn't now. And, and why are police departments, prosecutors so ambivalent about bringing um, these officers to heel who engage in these kinds of atrocities in our community. What, what's up with that in your mind? So, 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 so let me say this. Um, <laughs> I think it's interesting. The, the question that I ask, and of course, obviously as a researcher now, I'm looking at the world very differently, right? How many no-not warrants do we execute in suburban white communities? versus right. everywhere else, right? So let's look at the comparative. And what's the purpose of the no-knock? Generally, you'd wanna, you want the element of surprise because you believe that if you don't have the element of surprise, then they're gonna destroy evidence and or escape. So when we're going in with a warrant, you usually have the, the perimeter surrounded anyway. So they're not getting out. So there's, and, it, and, and if you're talking about a, not a primary residence, but a secondary or tertiary residence where you think something's being stashed, and none of that was found in the case of Breonna Taylor, right? right? What's the purpose of it? But not only that, what did you write in the warrant? What did you write in the, in the request to get the judge to approve it to begin with? So I, I think that in this age that we're in, we can't trust the police at face value. And that's the problem. Um, there used to be, as you know, you could take the testimony from an officer based on information and belief. That no longer is the case. And so that was what I think also of the no-knock warrant in this day and age, that we can't trust the information upon which it's being based. And therefore, there's got to be the balance struck between um, law enforcement, whatever that means, and also protecting the safety and well-being of the community that they're charged with in terms of public safety. Right. And so how do we, what do we do for these families who are struggling mightily in this area and I often advocate for others to you know get involved get engaged speak up on their behalf because they're just one person going against this machine right aside from what protesting um, what, what do you do how, how do how do we not change channels right because it's so easy to do so Kwame Torre um, formerly um, Stokely Carmichael one of his last lectures I got to see as a young person in Newark. And he says that every black person should belong to an organization. And um, if, if it's a weak organization, make it stronger. And if you can't make it stronger, then leave it and start your own. But we must start our own organization. He says, and then after we start the organization, we must ask the question about Africa. We're disconnected from who we really are as a people. And so we find ourselves lost here trying to fit into an environment that doesn't accept us. Um, we've got to organize. We've got to mobilize and then we have to politicize. So we have to create movements in our community on behalf of our community. You're right, I was fortunate. I was an officer that spoke up, spoke out. And when they came for me, the community had my back. 
And that's the only difference between me, you, and some others who've tried it and have been crushed under the pressure because as you know, they bring the, the, the entire force down upon you. The community has got the pickets levels of how we're going to respond. Not everybody's gonna be in the street protesting. I work with a group called MomSAD, Mothers of Murdered Sons and Daughters. These are mothers whose children have been killed by the police and other people and other children. So I've been doing that some 20 plus years. That's also where some work has to be done. Um, one of my colleagues, the Reverend Dr. Nicole Simpson, who just got her doctorate, has been doing 16 years in the prison here, um, all women's prison. We're now cops, correction officers are being prosecuted for raping them and taking advantage of them, impregnating them and forcing them to um, have to trade sex for favors for things that they should have gotten naturally. So, I mean, there's all sorts of levels and layers that we haven't even dealt with yet, but our community collectively needs to work collaboratively to protect those who are vulnerable. So when you talk about families that are struggling and, and don't know what to do, there are a bunch of us, you know, in, in the book, um, Crisis Action Plan, Black Cops Against Police Brutality, a Crisis Action Plan, a how-to book. We talk about having a council of elders as well as a committee that will wrap themselves around that family and provide the supports that they need from a wraparound perspective. That's how Emma Jones, Malik Jones's mother, who was an attorney whose son was killed in 1998, April 14th, at the corner of Grand and Murphy at 6 p.m. in New Haven, Connecticut. For four years, we would drive I know we would drive three hours there and three hours back for four years. And it is that level of commitment and organizing and mobilizing and pulling. Now, it took us a long time, but we finally got civilian oversight. And so we've got to decide where we want to plant our bucket and build from there as a collective around families that may not be able to do it themselves, but we can do it with them and help them. Well, you know, when I look at civilian oversight, the thing that you know, rubs me raw is, is that it doesn't seem to have any real teeth. Right here in LA, we have the Los Angeles Police Protect, uh, Los Angeles Police Commission. And, and we just, uh, our private commission can make recommendations. Right, and they've true. made recommendations very rarely where they go against uh, the police chief. But in this particular instance, it was a shooting of a, a mentally ill young man by the name of Ezel Ford. They found the shooting out of policy and then police chief Charlie Beck said, thank you. <laughs> and then he went up to the roof of the administration building and made a video to all of the troops saying, I got you. And so while having a uh, independent civilian review board is certainly helpful, I believe that's the reason that Daniel Pantaleo was ultimately fired because he was ineffective. He was ineffective because he lied, not because he choked Eric Garner, be clear. But most boards, make recommendations some do however again this but here we go again we're talking about communities organizing what can we do right you can decide that you're going to have a council that says like we have in newark which is why they've been in court with the union for the last year plus because we have a mayor who we organize with who says we wanted to have subpoena power we don't want to make recommendations we want to be able to make decisions we want to um have we want to have investigative powers and we also want to make sure that we have a percentage of the police department's budget period and so when you put your candidate in, you also have some demands that you want from your candidate. And so that becomes important. Like no one gives away power. I need to be real clear about that. They don't just say, okay, here you go, you got me. No, it has to be taken. You know, th th this is a struggle for liberation for our people. 
And I think we, we, we've romanticized this thing. We've read about the Black Panther Party. Well, let's be very clear. If the Black Panther Party was as bad as people say, then the government would not have taken all their programs, co-opted them, and now called them, um, um, what is it, the, the um, start, Head Start program. We're, we're feeding kids early in the morning. The Black Panther Party was doing that before it was a federal program. The Panthers were doing it. And J. Edgar Hoover knew it. He says, we've got to stop them at all costs because they understood that if we feed your children and we talk about educating you when you come to meet with us, well, then we can build a relationship with you because that's natural to what we do. What's happening is that we want a quick fix and you can't have a quick fix to something that has been going on as a system for 400 years. You know, when I think about this whole notion of defunding the police, I was on a call today um, with um, LAPD folks um, in terms of recruitment. My, my police chief says that he wants to increase the number of blacks and particularly women on the Los Angeles Police Department by a number that I think is not really doable given what's going on right now and, 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 the, and the mindset of folks, right? The whole FTP crowd, right? But but I, I think in listening to them talk here, and I, I can't help but wonder if this isn't um, gonna be a problem across the nation, that this the young people think defunding the police means less police on, on the street. And you have already alluded to why we need them because of Peaches and Ray Ray, right? We need them. But also what, what's happened here on the LAPD is they've lost a lot of money that would have gone to recruitment. And I think, again, having us on the department is key. And so now, uh, according to the people and personnel division on the LAPD, they were planning on recruiting. And I was making notes as we were speaking today. I think 250 people, and that ain't a whole lot, but now they're down to half of that. And so uh, some of that money was recruitment and some of it was um, you know, marketing and all of that that has to do with recruitment and, and how do you create opportunities to deal with attrition because we know that that's a real thing. Like you said, women have issues uh, when it comes to firearms training and strength, uh, lacking the strength to get through the physical rigors of a police academy. And so I wonder if when these young people are asking departments to defund the police department, if when mayors like mine and others say, okay, we'll take here $150 million and we'll move it, that they understand the, the back, the, um, the ill effect, if you will, that, that it actually does more to harm our community, right, than help our community. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, I do understand what you're saying. I think that it depends on your vantage point. And so the paradigm shifts for us, those of us that got a little more seasoning because we understand the impact. But from a young person's vantage point, at least my understanding is, if I see you as a harm to me, I don't give a damn what you lose because you're not a value to me anyway recruiting or not. So there's research that suggests until police departments have 35 to 45% representation of black police officers, black police officers will not stand up for the community because they don't believe that they have the support to stand in the midst of that and challenge and advocate on behalf of the community. That's just one study that I've, that I, that I obviously that I'm citing. Um, I, I think that what also needs to happen is that Guardian Civic League, which is a black police organization down in Philly, where Rochelle Bilal was president for about 18 years, they would go into the community and prepare the community for the test, right? As well as making sure that they prepared officers for the promotional exam. And they did that as long as I've known them and I do training for them. So I know that they've consistently done that to get their numbers up. Additionally, um, Eric Adams with the um, 
the Grand Council of Guardians, that was something they used to do. Eric is now a, um, a, a an elected official, the Brooklyn Borough President, I believe, in New York or Manhattan Borough President. But he was a captain when he left NYPD. And and as you know, our brother Vernon Wells, a sergeant, um, that was their group. They would go out and educate and train the community. So when we were doing it in East Orange, I had the cadet program. And so I was training my young officers, my young people coming through the Police Athletic League, getting them ready. Then they would join the cadet program, then the auxiliary police force, and then preparing them for the test. And so there are several that we brought up through the ranks. And some of the people that I brought up who were the rookies when I brought them in are now lieutenants. We're looking to get a black female captain. She just got promoted to lieutenant. And now we have her studying for the captain's test. So what I'm saying and suggesting is that even when police departments have these budgets, are they actually helping to do those things that the black police organizations knew we had to do to get more black officers on the force? Right? They're not going to just come join because you advertise. And when you're advertising, where are you spending those dollars? So are you turning around and taking tens of thousands of dollars and spending them with the white media? Or are you spending it with black and brown media that's going to actually impact our community? You know, let me ask you about police associations, because I know that there are nationals and I know that um, I think you were a part of it. Right. What is it? NABP? National um, black Police Association. The yeah. First and in the country. So I, I, I have a little angst about, you know, here we have the Oscar Joe Bryan Association. And I know that I've heard that they weren't really very uh, involved in that national organization. And I just personally, you know, I'm a little jaded. And I think, you know, um, you almost have to be go along to get along to be on those in the first place. And then once you get on, you don't want to ruffle no feathers. How do we encourage those associations to have the same kind of gumption, <laughs> temerity to speak the way these benevolent police officer associations do. So let me just say this. I don't think that you can grow testicles after you've grown up, right? So <laughs> so at the end of the day, I think that um, the black police officers, many of the black police organizations have been neutered, period. And that's what I think um, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I, I'm being a little flippant, but I do mean that I've been a member of the National Black Police Association since 1986. And I have a life membership. I think they'd love to rescind it, but I have a life, the Century Club membership that, that the elders in front of me taught me the importance of being a member. It's almost like what you're saying about in the police department making change. It is the same thing in the black police organizations making change. You must be in it to win it on some level. Now, as we did with um, in Clio J, National Coalition of Law Enforcement Officers for Justice, Reform and Accountability, when these organizations no longer meet your need or you don't believe that they're looking to change, then you have to start your own. When people ask me for the last four or five years, I know you said the last year, but it's been about three years now, sister. You're just missing some time clocks, right? Because that's how long ago we all came together. I think it was 15 or 16 when we came together. But I say to people, well, do you see Sergeant Shell Dorsey on CNN? Yes. Have you seen um, Reddick Hudson on um, MSNBC? Yes. Then you've heard the Lacey because I'm behind the scenes. We don't all have to be out front. And that's also part and parcel to the problem. We need to learn how to build, leverage our relationships and build coalitions. We need some allies, but we need to build coalitions to get this work done. Rochelle Bilal was added 18 years. I met her in 1997. And it was Chuck Taylor, who was from another black police organization at a conference who said, I want to introduce you to the female version of you. 
She's as wow. strong as you. She's as loud as you. And she's on point and loves the community. Now, you are also a part of that female version of me, right? We're counterparts. And I think that we are playing ourselves thin if we don't realize the power that we really have. We don't have to be as loud as the unions. We have to be more effective than the unions. And what we have that they don't have is we come from these communities. We're from the community. And what I tell cops, because see, what you're saying makes sense to me, but I recognize that many of us are punks. We were punks before we became cops, on the black officers on the force. We know we're punks. In fact, when we go home, our family members know we're punks, right? So what happens is I'm not trying to make you become a black man or a black woman. I'm asking you to give us your money. <laughs> okay? Give us your money. We'll fight for you, right? You, you, when right. you were the punk, you gave your money to the bully. He protected you. Now we're saying to you, we want to stand up for what's right for our community. Give us your money. And that's what happens. And that's what we've got to do. We want to do more than have parties. We want to do more than socialize. And when we go to a conference, like you just, we gave, you and I have given right here at least 25 solutions on this telecast. Now they could pick any one or all of them, but we didn't come and just have a feel good session. Right. Right. You know, and I was thinking, I, I, I talked to Reddit about this the other day because, you know, I, I, we were all together in D.C. meeting with Sheila Jackson Lee about, you know, all of this back yeah. then. And we're still having this conversation. It's so funny to me and Reddit may not say it, but I'm going to say it because he was in her presence and she was like, oh, you know, I would love to hear more about that. And he was like, oh, ma'am, we we were in your office, got pictures to prove it, uh, right. talking about this very issue. You you feigned uh, to have us back to hear more and say more uh, and presumably do more, yet um, here we are. And so I, it's very frustrating because I feel like from our black leadership that we're getting lip service. It sounds good, it, it, it's, it's sexy, it, it, it sometimes even feels good. But at the end of the day, how are we here today having the same conversation when everyone was outraged and had had enough allegedly in July of 2014, when Eric Garner was first murdered, and then two weeks later, Mike Brown, and two weeks after that, Ezell Ford here in Los Angeles, and then don't get me rattling off names. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Well, I, I think that we have short memories, and elected officials know that. And so police brutality, up until recently, police brutality has not registered high when our communities have been surveyed in terms of what they're concerned about. So elected officials know that also. So they know that if they just simply roll with it for a little bit, and as Dr. Tyrone Powers, one of our brothers out of Baltimore, Maryland, who's an FBI agent, state trooper, and my colleague says all the time, when he worked in the behavioral unit of the FBI, they studied black people and black people's protests. And so they knew that black people only needed about three good days to get protested out. <laughs> that they're going to yell, they're going to scream, and then about the third day they're done. In fact, I tell communities that I work with, I said, listen, you can't kill Hassan, Pookie, Peaches, or Ray Ray in the wintertime, and you don't want to kill them in the rain because ain't nobody coming out, right? We need them to get killed when it's a sunny day. And I'm being facetious, but that's where how we behave because of our level of disinterest or our lack of commitment to whatever it is we believe we believe in. And so at the end of the day, the elected officials are playing, they're playing the stats. So if the numbers say that police brutality is number four in priorities to the, those people who vote, then they're going to give us lip service and we're going to keep revisiting this discussion, which is why I'm talking about us building institutions that address the needs of our community and some of the underlying concerns and needs that we have to address. Because again, if we're organizing, guess what? They're going to have to listen. 
The unions are organized. That's why I specifically talked about making it taboo to accept union money because the unions are 501c4, which allows them to donate money. And what we need to say to elected officials that are ignoring our, our cries, ignoring us being murdered in the street at the hands of killer cops, is if you take their money, you can't have our vote. We've got to, there's got to be a hammer, right? We just can't make demands and think because we demanded something, a person's going to respond. As, as um, Alton Maddox, the attorney at war, used to say in New York, there must be an or else. So what's the or else? The or else is if you take union money, which we know goes against the interests of black, brown, poor people, and fragile and marginalized communities, you will not get our vote. I don't care what you look like. And they could put Mickey Mouse in office. I'd rather deal with Mickey Mouse and come up with a mousetrap than to deal with you when you look me dead in the face and lie to me. Do you think that's something that would take legislation to actually really stop? Or do you think it would just be the, the power of um, the vote? You can't legislate behavior. How do you unracist a racist? How do you untrain it? Right. right. So while Jane Elliott, who I like a social scientist, says that you can actually train the brain, but you got to first want to hear it. Right. You you a police officer, you know what training is like. So there's some mandatory training that you have to do to you go to firearms training and now they throw domestic violence in there. They throw in this training, that training, all of that in in the firearms training that you don't want to be at anyway. Right. And you take it, you leave it, and you don't even clean the gun again until the next. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, right. So, Everybody's going. Right. So there's got to be a there's got to be political will to get the job done. Here's the other side of that coin. Why don't we shoot unarmed white kids? They commit crimes at about the same rate. We don't shoot them. In fact, when they're white people with guns, we talk them down. And Dylan Roof. We took him to get McDonald's or Burger King. He killed nine people in the church. And they put him in the back of the car and said, would you like a burger? Right? That's the reality. And so we've got to be clear that this isn't hard science. This is about, you, you know, um, one time I listened to a minister say, what do you do with your former slaves' children when you don't want them and have any use for them anymore? You kill them. And those that you don't kill, you let them kill themselves. That's where we are. We're in that place in space. So I don't care what legislation they come up with. Do they need it? Yep, I want you to legislate whatever you want to legislate. The reality is there's no legislation that says black cops don't shoot at white people. Right. There's no legislation that says black cops don't shoot at Joey running down the street with a candy bar, a, a candy bar, a cigarette, a box, a bag of this. I thought he had a gun. And when Muhammad Noor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Thought that he could get away with that same line and shot that white woman from Europe. They gave him 12 and a half years and they gave her family $20 million quickly. So we know that they know what to do. It's a matter of who they want to enforce laws against and who they want to give a pass to. Right, right. Well, listen, what now? What now? I think that um, we continue to organize. Um, I, I think that. Um, there's another conversation that happens in our community that has nothing to do with the police, right? People often want to make this argument that, um, you know, well, the police kill each other, I mean, kill us and you get angry, but when you kill yourselves, nobody's protesting. Those are not, um, they're, they're not um, 
they're not arguments that need to be made because what I say to people is that the criminal didn't take an oath to protect and serve the people, the police did. So that's one conversation. But then there's a conversation that we have to have in our community about how do we organize it? Um, how do we structure the community so that we can protect the women, the children, the elders? Um, for example, just with the coronavirus, we're going to have a generation of children that missed an entire year of school, period. That has an impact. We have to prepare for that impact. There's some psychological impacts that are going to happen. People are going to be depressed and anxious, right? That impacts our community no matter what's going on with the police. So how are we organizing around addressing some of those concerns? They will affect us. Um, we've got to talk about how do people eat? While 40 million people were unemployed, there's still 33 million people that are getting some kind of assistance, which is subsistence, because 30 million people have also said that they didn't have enough to eat over the past week. And so our community is struggling, but we do have the resources that we have to pull together. We must decide at multiple levels, right? We talked about the federal level, the state level, local level. You and I and all of us in our group, we're connected across the country, right? You get an opportunity and we're all excited and ecstatic, right? We're not looking at you talking about, well, why not me? Right. And so we've got to we've got to model the behavior that we want people to follow. And we've got to do some concrete things where we are and around the country to protect our community because other people are doing it. They're preppers. I happen to be a prepper, right? So people are like, what is that? Well, we prepare for days like this, right? Mm -hmm. Most We had a storm here on the East Coast. I've got friends that are without power still, but most of them are not prepared to go more than 24 hours without power. I was here for Storm Sandy. I went six days in the house, 30 degrees in the house, and I stayed in the house because I was worried about Pookie and Peaches and them taking the pipes since there was no alarm system, there was no cameras, <laughs> and there was no police. So I sent my family one way, and I stayed here to protect the home, right? But we have to prepare for this. More of this is going to occur. So regardless of what government chooses to do, we must begin to organize our churches, our mosque, masjid, temple, institutions, organizations, sororities, fraternities, in a way that protects the village. That's what I think we need to do next. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Chuck wants to know, what perspective, what's your perspective on the role of the FOP with regards to reform or, or lack thereof? What is my perspective relative to the FOP? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In regards think, to reform, think, do you think they're uh, a hindrance? Um, Absolutely, they're a hindrance. They're 501c4. I think we're foolish people and naive, and naive little people if we think that an organization that is designed to protect its membership is not going to protect its membership. Mm -hmm. Period. We learn that from policing. You go to a house where you know there's a bad family in the house. You know that they got generations of criminal behavior and activity. And no matter what that person does, they protect them. Now, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. What I am saying is that's what the police do also, right? They don't snitch either. So they can't be a part of the reform. They're part of the problem. They are part and parcel to the problem. And we are part and parcel in that we're not organizing in a similar fashion to do battle. The reason I wanted to go and get a doctorate, because I said, I'm sick and tired of the experts in the criminal justice field being white men and white women. How are you an expert on us? Right. How are you, right? And so I can't just talk and whine about it. I need to go and study and come prepared. And not only did I need to study, but I need to come at the top of my game. Right. So I come out of there with a 3.9 GPA because it was important to me. People say, well, your GPA doesn't matter. I said, well, they didn't matter. Why they give awards for it? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that part. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, D, I so appreciate you coming on here with me and we can yammer. We, we could do this for another you know, day. Right. As we always but do. I want to I want to spend a little time letting um, the family know, number one, where to find you, 
what okay. you are engaged and involved in, how they might um, link up with you uh, to either be a part of that or get something like what you've talked about going in their city and or town. So take a moment or two and talk a little bit about, and I know you got a book because I know you. So uh, promote you. Sir. The book is Black Cops Against Police Brutality, A Crisis Action Plan. It's a how-to book on dealing with police violence, misconduct, and abuse. It's hard to find some places, but we are selling the last, I guess, couple of hundred that we have possession of before we do another run with the publisher. Um, in, in addition to that, I can be found at drdelacydavis.com. That's D-R-D-E-L-A-C-Y, davis.com. That's the website. I'm, I'm excited about the website. Um, Cole Media was responsible with um, Kyle Rivers, who designed it, and the webmaster. They've done an excellent job, just launched about a month ago. My email is drdelacydavis at gmail. I'm also at LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, all of them under my name, so you can find me. I think that the work that we're doing now um, is about capacity building, right? Teaching other people and young people in communities how to do a lot of what we talked about today. I talked about mom said, this is the 23rd or 24th year that we get together every December to celebrate families and talk about the lives that have been lost in our community and the young people that are absent. But we need to talk about it so we can heal and it's cathartic. Um, I'm working with young groups, um, Unstoppable Girls. I sit on a board with sisters that are working for young girls, but helping to raise money and supporting them and supporting their efforts and initiatives. I do a male mentoring program. I currently launched my, this past Monday, it's a drone program because we're outdoors and I don't want to be around humans, but I've got seven young men signed up with mental health challenges. I've got two black men that own drone companies and they came out with their thousands of dollars in drones teaching young people how to command these drones. And if they want to get a pilot's license, we're paying for it because that's a job of the future that doesn't require a college degree. You just got to be good at it and then make your money a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars an hour. Why not? I'm also a musician. I play Atlantic City when it's open with a band down Atlantic City, which is two hours from me. I'm a percussionist. I started out as a percussionist. I was fortunate enough to go to Ghana and be in stew by the elders as Nana Kwasi or Riradu the first in Safwa Hene, which simply means keeper of the keys to the village in Anum Pompom in Ghana, West Africa. I've been going there since 1994. While my mother was living, she would go every other year that I didn't go. And so we built relationships with families there and brought brothers and sisters back here building relationships. I'm now building relationships with the Nigerian community. So there's all sorts of work that we're doing consistently across the lines. We have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and we can't just work in our own little area, in our own little village. We've got to build relationships all over the country. When I send my daughter, the artist, anywhere in the country, she's an opera singer, which very few black women are singing opera, young women. I know in every city and state she goes to, there's someone on the ground that I can trust to make sure she's safe while she's there. So that's the work that we do. Um, I love the work that I'm doing. Um, we're coaching a lot of people, we're mentoring people, and we're organizing. Now, most recently, as I told people, um, being black right now is popular for about three more months, right? Black Lives Matter. <laughs> then that window's gonna close and we're gonna go back to when we were slaves again. And so I'm taking advantage of that. So corporations are bringing me in to talk to their CEOs and their boards of directors and their community to talk about George Floyd and race and racism and why silence is no longer golden. So one of the other things you can do is while you're there and if you're in a place where you're controlling budgets, bring all of us in so we can come in there and shake the place up. 
if you don't have the courage to speak up, then if you're a diversity director, if you're at corporate and you're doing all sorts of conferences and spending tens of thousands of dollars to bring in happy Negroes, then just bring in two Negroes that we'll pretend to be happy till we get in and the check clears and we'll blow the spot up for you and make you proud to be black at least one day in the week that you've been there <laughs> in that institution walking around scratching where you don't itch and bending over when you want to stand up. Ooh wee, sir. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I needed to start with you. Praise God. I want to welcome welcome you to come again. Anytime. Uh, come often. Come, yeah. We gonna we gonna do this some more because I know there's a whole lot more that you want to say, and 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 I know that you know we we have short attention spans, so I know somewhere somebody probably got to get up and go powder their nose right now. Yes, yes. I don't want to keep them too long. Thankfully, they have the benefit of replaying this, and I hope family, you will share this. Uh, with everybody that you know, uh, sit some folks down. Uh, we we sheltered in place anyway. And so just find some quiet time uh, when you're done with all of what's going on on the news to sit down and, and let folks hear something that's really going to benefit you long term. And so, uh, Brother Dr. DeLacy Davis, thank you so much for joining me. And we will definitely do this again. And family, as I always say, until next time, be good, be safe. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. DeLacy Davis and I do what it is that we do. We always have a good time when we get together and certainly he gave us a lot to think about and much to do. Hope you'll take to heart some of his suggestions. Um, back this up, listen to it again if you need to, tell a friend, write it down and then get busy. Until next time family, be good, be safe. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. You have been listening to the Sergeant Dorsey Speaks podcast, produced by the Get Global Network. Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey is a television commentator, social justice advocate, and is also well known for her book, Black and Blue creation of a social advocate, an autobiography of her 20-year career as a black woman on the Los Angeles Police Department. The book details what she learned as an LAPD insider. Sergeant Dorsey can be contacted through her website, sgtdorseyspeaks.com, or via any of her social media sites like YouTube and Facebook. Take the time to subscribe to her YouTube channel and also subscribe to this podcast via major podcast networks like iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and many others. The podcast is also available on wireless speaker systems like Alexa and Sonos. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.